You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to episode 18 of the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. What a week, remarkable turnaround, one wicket wins, Chris Gale, Jason Roy, we've got lots to digest in today's pod. I'm Yaz Rana and today I'm joined by the editor-in-chief of the Wisdom Cricket Monthly Magazine. It's out today, by the way, one of your own, Phil Walker. <laughs> welcome, Phil. Hello. Um, and also with us today, back from Australia, is Crickviz's Ben Jones. Bit jet lag, Ben? Uh, yeah, it's, I think it's 4am for me at the moment, but I, I wouldn't miss this for the world, yes. Did you turn up at work at 7 in the morning? Yeah. You sleep? Yeah, I woke up at 3am. Down the Thames or something? Well, I don't live in London, so it's quite a walk anyway. Um, so by the time I got to the Thames, I thought I might as well come to the Oval. Uh, Fair enough. But yeah, so I'm... I can't, can't stay away, can you? Running on fumes, but yeah, like I say, had well, to be here. Cr- opinion. Cricket, <laughs> this is a cricket podcast. Um, we'll start with my moment of the week, because it should be everyone else's. I don't really know why it wasn't. Um, Kusal Pereira's 153 not out arguably the greatest innings in Test cricket's history um, Sri Lanka somehow chased down 304 against a bloody good South Africa attack they're at one stage 226 for 9 um, it was an extraordinary innings because Sri Lanka were just about staying in the game as it was normally with Pereira in and Dan and Jaya De Silva and then De Silva goes when they still need 120 odd left to win and then they have a mini collapse and suddenly they're 9 down and um, he just basically, he was incredible from that, that point in. He was a great shepherding strike. Vishwa Fernando was his partner, who was a genuine number 11. And the best bit was how he could just hit Dale Stain for six, basically at will. Um, has Test cricket ever been this good? We've had some amazing games recently. I think I think we'll deal with the first part of that first in terms of the slightly smaller question. I think that um, what was so amazing about that innings as well is it had all of the component parts of those mythical innings in the sense that Vishwa Fernando is going to be an incredible answer to a trivia question yeah. in about 10 years' time, <laughs> who was at the other end. And so it's got that kind of, those little minute details. It had that sense of theatre. And the fact that, in a way, the ground was so 
kind of sparsely populated, I thought added to it because you could hear the roar of the balcony from off the balcony <laughs> of the Sri Lankan players and stuff. So it kind of it felt like a real piece of theatre. Um, I don't I don't think Test cricket is at the peak of like it's ever been. I think there's been highs and lows down the years, but I think what we're getting at the moment is real variance because so many teams are on a relative equal footing with others. So we haven't necessarily got an uber dominant team, but we've got lots of players and and teams that are capable of turning up. I mean, England are like the ultimate example of that. Like we can lose to anyone. And, and beat anyone. anyone. And Sri Lanka, I don't think, are going to be that over the next two years. But having just seen them at Canberra and Brisbane be absolutely obliterated in, in three days or maybe four days on those occasions. And with no Matthews, no Chandamal. Exactly. But to then come back, go to South Africa and, and do what they've done, it is, it, it, it's got this, it's a bit of splendour about it. It's quite special. What I was getting at was I don't think the kind of innings that Pereira played was something you, you'd see 15 years ago. Pereira isn't with the great respect, a world-class player in any sense. He's 28, averages in the low 30s, and he was just able to hit Stain at six, uh, for six whenever he wanted to in, in the last um, half an hour of that run chase. That wouldn't have been able, that didn't happen 15 years ago. T20 cricket means that these players who aren't particularly well-regarded can do that. Yeah, range hitting has definitely improved um, players across all formats, and it means that a different kind of cricket <laughs> is played. Um, but it, again, it's that thing of, it's players being able to do different things, not necessarily a higher quality, I mm. think. So I'm kind of checking your your optimism a little okay. bit, but that's you know that's what I'm here for. But I think equally it's exciting because a lot of the core skills have, have gone down in quality as well, like defensive batting, perhaps slip catching, and a combination of that and other skills, both, both within batsmen and bowlers, have gone up. But I think the combination of both makes it quite exciting. Um Shranko also had a really good uh, left arm spinner on debut. Lasith Embleton is twenty-two, tall. Uh, did you see? Oh, did you guys see his first ball? I can't say I did. Sorry. So it was against uh, Duplessis, and it, it was basically the perfect left arm spinner delivery that it just missed the off stump by a, by a whisker. Um, he doesn't turn have about. a delivery stride. Not really, no. But he looks good, doesn't he? Yeah, he's got a lot of control from what I've seen. As, as you say, it comes from that kind of height. Yeah. Um, but a curious action. Yeah. I can't recall seeing. Spinner bowl quite like that before. I've seen the odd quick bowl like that, weirdly enough. Safraz Noel has never really had a, a delivery mm. stride. He used to shuffle through the crease with a quick arm. Um, yeah, and now, now you're seeing with this Sri Lankan side, uh, out of the ether, really, and the emergence of a handful of, of good young players. You mm. mentioned uh, Fernando, the number 11. He'll be a quiz question maybe in the future, but he's also a, a very good young left arm seamer. Yeah. We're talking midway through day one of the second test match and they're, they're fighting hard against Sri Lanka and, and he took two in two uh, with a couple of absolute jaffers, clean bowling, mm. Elgar and Amla. Uh, and Sri Lankan cricket's an, an odd thing because it's it's generally relied on these kind of immortals of three and four and then cobbled together some talent around it uh, and a useful spinner, it's fair to say, who's <laughs> about 11. Um, but now they've got a kind of battery of quicks coming through and that's almost where they're making that's where they're hanging in there in international test cricket you know Kamara or Chamara I don't exactly know how you pronounce it uh, there's Chamara and Kamara yeah Kamara sorry the right the right arm seamer you know muscular kind of quick um, you know who looks who looks like he can he can offer something as well and and yeah out of the rubble of a desperate 12 to 18 months of Sri Lankan test cricket they've come and pulled one out of the bag I, I didn't see it. I was I was in the pub Saturday afternoon. I wasn't expecting there to be a great kind of rumble emerge from from 
you know, a kind of fag end test match at the end of the South African summer between a team that is unbeatable at home and a team that can't buy a win anywhere. And yet this is what cricket can still do to you. Uh, and, and, and it's it's one for the ages. I think specifically in that, in, in the chase, the best bit for me was when Fernando Edge won off Stain into the slip cordon. that didn't quite carry. The South, South African fielders were kind of disappointed, looking at the ball, not really concentrating on anything. And Pereira realised, hang on, I can sneak a single here, run down to the other end. I think it's Duplessis, has a shy at the stumps. Fernando would be miles out. There's no one at mid on five overthrows. And that was, that was the moment I thought that South Africa had kind of lost the plot. They weren't really, um, they weren't really on it. They didn't really control the game. They didn't really try and slow it down or anything. I, I, I watched the highlights that night and saw the interviews as well, post-match interviews, and you got that little glimpse of cricket at its best again when Duplessis was clearly almost as thrilled as everybody <laughs> else. <laughs> uh, and that was a nice little little bookmark, I think, at the end of, of what's obviously one of one of the great Test match innings. Cool. Let's let's move on to what happened yesterday: the West Indies versus England ODI. Phil, that's your moment of the week, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's it's got to be Jason Roy's increasingly irresistible case uh, <laughs> back three um, in 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 Test cricket for, for the foreseeable, really. Uh, and and he knew it, and we all knew it, and he got a hundred in the warm up game, and he went out there and did what Jason Roy does. Uh, better pundits and observers than I have been saying for years that there is something quite unusual about Jason Roy uh, that he's not just a hitter. Uh, and one thing that struck me from the Test Series, and I think I've said it on this show before, um, you have good county players coming up against real pace and they don't, they don't quite see it. They don't know it. They, they don't have any great grounding in it. They can face bowling machines at 95 mile an hour all day long. But until you actually come face to face with something like Gabriel, uh, it's a culture shock. And Joe Denley, fair play, batted nicely in that second innings, albeit, you know, England were up in that game, final innings of, of his of his nascent test career so far. And he, he played 90 for 60-odd. But there was still that sense when I was watching it, Jennings as well, that when you're faced with real pace, that's when you really sort the wheat from the chaff. And the thing with Jason Roy, Jason Roy has climbed into Mitchell Stark. He's climbed into to Pat Cummins. Um, he's hit them down the ground. He's hit them off the front foot through mid-wicket uh, to short balls that are angled across him. He plays like a player who just has that split second and time is everything in cricket because uh, there's not much of it going around um, and he knew he needed to make a mark you talk about timing well the timing of that innings was was immaculate um, it was a fabulous game of cricket up to a point it, it felt I was watching it last night and there was a kind of <sighs> an inevitability to it quite early in the piece and I was in the pub with Joe Harmon beforehand and, and building up to the end of West Indies innings and we were saying so where, where's your money and Joe was saying well probably with England and we were almost and I was agreeing with him we were almost sh- shrugging our shoulders at another record getting ticked off you know 360 they've never chased that before I believe and yet they did it with eight balls to spare and there was that sense quite early on in their innings of a kind of remorseless inevitability now look it's great to talk about English ODI cricket like that in one respect but it does limit one's enjoyment and satisfaction when you are watching 50 over cricket because it is it is immensely powerfully uh, directed towards one way I think a big part of that is how good Joe Root is so yeah, Joe Root well, yeah, without you really shout. noticing yeah. suddenly is on 70 off 70 and other teams I don't think get to those totals as easily as England do so other teams have players like Jason Roy maybe not as good as 
but like Jason Warren, they get off these flying starts, but suddenly England have those flying starts, but they're still going at six and over in those slow, slow middle overs. I think we're, we are doing a bit of a disservice to England there yeah. and, and to the game as, as a whole, because whilst we do see lots more 350 plus scores and 300 plus scores all the time there, you know, no one, no one bats an eyelid. They don't happen chasing that often. That's that's still pretty rare that teams chase down 350 plus. And actually it's so psychologically different to do that. Um, I think, what we were spe- we were speaking earlier before we started recording about the fact that when you're chasing a score that big, you've you've almost got to do it twice. You've got to have that incredible start where you score, yeah, you know, what was it set? There were 70, 70 for none of six overs, and then you can tick in the middle, and then you've got to go again at the end. And what England do so well is they almost wipe that out. They mm. get rid of that that kind of quite quite structural thinking, and they basically just go hard all the time. And it's almost like that removes the doubt. And lots of other teams don't have that. They might be a bit more clinical. India are certainly like that. They will try and be 50 for none off the first 10 overs, whatever they are chasing, whether they're chasing a 1,000 or four. Like That's what they are going to do. And then they'll work from there. And I think that is, that's the kind of difference between the two best sides in the world. And I'm not sure that like New Zealand, who are a good side, and South Africa, who are an OK side, and Australia, who are a poor side, like they're not, they're not able to go about it in the same way. I don't yeah, think. I think that's fair. And you know, Australia brought a team over here albeit slightly hamstrung by events uh, in Cape Town and all of that. They took a, brought a team over to England last summer and got got stuffed 5-0. Um, just on that, my favourite game from that, that series was the game that Joss Butler won on his own yeah. at Old Trafford when it, it, it had a look of a, of a kind of a timeless game of cricket. You know, a big quick blew away a top order. Uh, there was a repair job, there was a blip, and then there was one one bloke who, who managed to see it through. And that game had the ebbs and flows that uh, 50 over cricket doesn't always provide for you. So much of it's down to the pitch. Um, we, we ask for great pitches in one-day cricket because it's better to see 300 versus 300 than 150 all out. But there are limits to it. And yesterday, when you saw Taylenders walk out against Adil Rashid, who I thought incidentally bowled beautifully, and I'll come back to that in a minute, and just reverse sweeping him for six, you know, to a 50-yard boundary, that's when it does slightly make a mockery of, 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 of the, the wondrousness of our game. Yeah, let's talk about that West Indies innings, because if England had to chase 360, that means West Indies scored 360 themselves. Chris Gale, I think, hit some of the biggest sixes I've ever seen. 122 metres was one of them. Yeah. Comfortably out of the ground. I think he lost four balls. <laughs> Not a bad effort, is yeah. it? He's now hit the most sixes. Probably in lost in the game, though, yes. You know, he's only five off 30 odds and made, just made a run of all 100. Compare that to, to Roy. Uh, yeah, but if Roy... I'm just being pointlessly yeah, provocative, okay. obviously. I was going to say, if, if Roy had caught Gale early on on nine, yeah. West Indies aren't getting 360. Um, someone said earlier, before we got on this show, because we really are so boring, we talk about cricket before we get on this show as well. Someone mm. said that the best shot was, I think, Jason Roy's second shot. Uh, it, was, it, was, said, yeah. it was Roy's second scoring shot when he was like, he was on one off four or something like that and he just I, th- I think it was off Bishu um, and he just got basically got down not even on one knee didn't even need to get right. down that low and just swatted him over mid wicket yeah. for six and it I mean that's just going back to how good Jason Roy is because his hand eye coordination is just insane but there is there was I, I'm I'm kind of always reluctant to be too kind of curmudgeonly about it but there was a bit there was a bit too much ease involved it's like Bishu was a very good white ball spinner. And actually, he was getting he's getting tonked before batsman's even got his eye in. Yeah, yeah, you you're generally right, but you are wrong on this occasion because the best shot of the, of the game was um, uh, the boy Shy Hope's Shy Hope's second scoring shot. So his first scoring shot was a gorgeous punch down the ground for four, of course. But his second scoring it's shot, the Moeen six, it was it was a flick off his 
off his hip from outside off stump. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, one bounce four over mid-wicket against, I think it was Wood, who was bowling quite sharp. Um, and it was terrifyingly beautiful. And every single West Indian cricket fan would have just watched that and go, yeah, I remember. That's, what, <laughs> that's how it used to be. It was nonchalant. It was impudent. The timing was immaculate. You have no right to hit that ball there. Anyone who's played the game, you, n- you do not hit the ball there. Uh, he, is, he has got something special, shall I hope. And he, he run a ball 60-odd shock when he got out, really. Uh, and if he'd stayed around, they'd have, they'd have got even more. And another thing worth mentioning is um, England actually haven't played that much ODI cricket recently. So they came into the match quite undercooked. And uh, to pull off a chase like that is quite impressive. And it perhaps explains some of the bowling from England as well. I don't think Plunkett looked brilliant yesterday, but fair play, he's barely played. England have only played He's a stick five... on though, right? Isn't he? Um, well, more and more, more and more people seem to be questioning him, but I think I think it's Why? that. Well, I think it's there was a few years ago, um, it, was, it was probably like four or five years ago now, when um, the Juventus goalkeeper Gianluigi Buffon started letting balls go through his hand when he was keeping and letting in bizarre things and missing the ball when he came for crosses. And everyone was like, well, you know, he's 34, maybe this this is it, this is terminal decline. And then he came back and was brilliant for five years. And I feel like there's too much. Uh, kind of desire to write off a player who's in their early to mid 30s as if they have a couple of bad games like oh that's it they've stopped now they're not good anymore whereas actually Plunkett's just been a bit mediocre for a while he not even could, to be honest not yeah. even that long but I mean the fact that he, we haven't played much in the yeah. last seven months shows that but he is slightly plateauing but it doesn't mean that he's going to be uh, kind of getting worse and worse he could still he could still come in relies on him yeah in those middle overs you need him to come in bowl those cross uh, kind of cross seam bang it in the middle of the pitch and get people caught on the boundary like that is what England do they have Rashid and Plunkett so they can take wickets in the middle overs on any surface if you take him out you can put Joffre in there and say do that but it's already an unknown quantity when you've got the best ODI team in the world why start tinkering if Plunkett has an absolute mare for the first five games then maybe but he's not had a mare he's just been slightly subpar yeah I I agree I totally agree I can see the argument though that he's a 33 34 year old fast bowler and fast bowlers do suddenly go off the cliff I can see that but I don't think we've seen it um, seen the proof in the pudding that that's actually happened I think it's more speculation really um you you were saying that right there that you think that going for Joffre Archer would be would be a risk because we don't know how how, how good he is. Or it's how so hard, isn't it? It's so tricky. I've, I've been thinking about this a lot. Just um, just been, I've been getting quite generally excited about the World Cup because I'm quite sad like that. And just trying to put together a 15 man squad is is really difficult when you realise that England have got this pool of about 17 players who could all have a real strong claim on it. And Joffre is by virtue of the fact that he can't he hasn't played. Every everyone's judgments about him are are coloured by emotion. Everyone's kind of like it's it's the oh it's this mad renegade coming in at the last minute and it's all the backstory and it's the kind of oh it's 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 so subversive and peculiar or it's like well he's actually just a really good white ball bowler and it's quite difficult to make a call on it. Personally, I think it's I don't think they need to bring him in. I don't think England struggle that much um, with their death bowling quite as much as everyone thinks they do, especially if Tom Curran's playing. Um, I mean that that game that he won for England in uh, in Australia last year um, was one of the best ODI death bowling performances you'll see, and I think that if they if they give him his head and just let him be England's death bowler, I think Curran has the potential to be better than Archer. Um, but obviously, he's such an exciting player yeah. and he's so fun. It's kind of nice to just kind of get involved in the carnival. And, and he gives you something more in the batting and fielding as well. I think. Well, not meaning the BBL. I mean, Tom Curran's been absolutely tearing it up yeah, in the bat as true. well. So I think true. he's improving in that regard. It, it's more of a 
of a conversation in July, isn't it, after the World Cup is done and dusted. If Archer makes the cut, then I don't personally have a problem with that. I think you need you need that kind of mystery player um, as an option. Uh, but it becomes really relevant, I think, after the World Cup is done and Australia turn up for five test matches. And then, then you look at it and you think, what do, what do England need? What have they been crying out for for the last two or three years? Well, we know what that answer is, and Mark Wood showed it mm. in an afternoon. Um, and all right, we can caveat it with, you know, English pitches always do a bit, blah, blah, blah. But if we're looking at building a test team that's still number five in the world, I believe, if we're looking to build a test team to go alongside this one-day phenomenon, then Archer becomes uh, a huge story there, therein, I think. Um, and for what it's worth, the prediction would be that Archer will play that first test match. I don't think he will play that first uh, World Cup game. Interesting. But I do think that he will play against Australia in the Ashes. Interesting. Um, ben, what's your moment of the week? Um, well, as you say, I've just come back from Australia. I've been been out watching the test matches and everything that's been going on over there. And I've been quite quite immersed in the BBL for the last few weeks. Um, and I was lucky enough to be there at the uh, the Marvel Stadium in Melbourne on uh, on Sunday afternoon for the for the for the final for the All Melbourne final. Um, and what I witnessed was probably the greatest choke in T20 history um, for people who didn't see it um, the Renegades backed first collapsed faffed around got themselves to a competitive total and then ish it was, it was competitive on that on that marble surface which has been pretty dog awful all, 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 uh, all summer and then Marcus Stoinis and Ben Dunk come out to bat and just creaming it everywhere and having the best time and the game's gone half, half the crowd had gone home TV people have packed up, gone home, like no one's watching. And then Stoinis gets out playing a kind of slightly nonchalant shot. And you think, okay, well, this is fine. They still need 53 off 43 with nine wickets in hand. This is fine. And then Hanscom comes in and plays a random shot. And then Maxi comes in and plays a random shot. And all of a sudden, the pack of cards falls. And the, the Melbourne Stars lose the final of the tournament they've been playing in for two and a half months in approximately 20 minutes. Um, was it a 30 for nine collapse or something? Like it was something ridiculous yeah. like that. It was one of those things where you look at it and you think that's a, that's a test team at the end of a tour and they want to catch an early flight and get on the golf course. It's not a team in a final who are yeah. so close to victory. It was one of, it was Maybe remarkable. Maybe as exhausted as the rest of us. I knew you were going to, for some reason I didn't even need to ask your opinion on the VVL season for. Um, it's just as well because I don't really have one. <laughs> well, I've, I've I've watched more than most in in this country thing, and I think I'd say the quality. Anyone? Uh, no, well, well, Freddie Wilde is sat across right. the uh, across okay. the oval pitch, so I'm I would one of two. I wouldn't make that claim, but I, no, it's been a um, it was a mixed tournament. Um, the quality wasn't as good as it has been in previous years, but the final is what the season will be remembered for, and that's quite nice when you have a slightly less than memorable year to have a an iconic final, the miracle at the Marvel. Um, that you can kind of look back on and You're say yeah. it well. Yeah, well, you know, I'm, I'm really trying. I, I liked it. It was it was a good tournament and a great final. Um, but I'm, yeah, you have to you have to give it a name, don't you? You have to you have to sell it. Um, yeah, I, I'm I'm basically on Phil's side here. I didn't really enjoy the big bash that much, but I never um, said that. Don't put words in my mouth. Okay. He said he didn't watch it, which is quite even more damning, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in, yeah, as you say, it was an extraordinary final. But it's also extraordinary that the Renegades won the tournament. They only had three individual scores of more than fifty in the whole tournament, and one of them was from Cameron Boyce, the uh, the leggy yeah. tail ender. So, 
So that's in a two and a half month tournament to only have three individual scores of fifty and end up winning the thing. That means they they must have had a pretty good bowling attack. Yeah, it was it was kind of defined by the the pitch at Marvel, which was really slow, really low, really spin spin dominant, and it was impossible to score anything over like one sixty most of the time. And and then they managed to get their act together for the uh, for the semi final. Um, against uh, the Sixers where the pitch was a lot better and then it went it kind of reverted to tight for the final um, and the Renegades kind of constructed their team with that in mind they kind of knew what they were getting um, in terms of their home surface and players like Kane Richardson who is very similar to Liam Plunkett in terms of the way he bowls kind of halfway down the track lots of variations um, spinners like Mohamed Nabi who, and Boyce himself kind of knew how to bowl on that surface and it was kind of it was the bowling side which certainly got them home but I mean, the man of the tournament, I'm not sure if it actually was in terms of the official judgment, but it was, it was Dan Christian, who is rapidly becoming like the canniest T20 cricketer in the world. Um, and it's those kind of experience, experienced players who can get you over the line in those quite short, sharp, or not quite short enough or sharp enough, according to some tournaments. Um, but Harry, but, Harry Gurney as well. Harry Gurney, his, of course. His, his stats were extraordinary. He... He bowled 20 overs uh, in the death, if you define the death overs as the last five overs of an innings, and he only conceded seven boundaries in those 20 overs. That's brilliant. He's ridiculous. He's, he's, a, he's a, a hidden phenomenon, Harry Gurney. Quite um, underappreciated. I think so. I think because we, in England, obviously he came into the ODI side and was a bit mixed, and so we kind of we wrote him off, as we tend to do in England, when yeah. someone doesn't immediately succeed. We're kind of like, oh, well, they've had their moment. And actually he's gone away and got better, as death bowlers tend to, um, and is now... Playing his trade, he's in he's in uh, the UAE at the moment in the PSL. He's gonna go probably gonna go to the IPL, I think. Yeah, he is. Yep, KKO. Yep. yep. So he's a he, he's a, he's an in demand man, which is it's, it's it's nice. It's like this late career flourish. It's always entertaining because suddenly you get these guys. I mean, the Christian and um, Gurney Nottingham connections yeah. quite nice. They're kind of traveling the world, winning tournaments, taking names, just having this great time. That, it's it's an it's a nice story, and I'm, yeah, kind, of, I'm kind of glad that the Renegades have been able to kind of pull all these guys together. It is well. Uh, Looking further back, in the the issue of Wizarding Cricket Monthly that comes out today, there's an extended section on the greatest individual performances of all time across the series. Um, Here we go, old stuff. Yeah, old, <laughs> bit, of, bit of history. They're, they're wearing whites most of the time, the balls are red, you know. Uh, well, Phil is the editor-in-chief of the magazine. You you, you obviously know what, what's in it. Uh, Vaguely. Yeah, Ben, ben you, you don't. Um so I'm going to ask I'm going to ask Ben first. So let, let's just clarify briefly. So the, okay. the piece is called Series Killers, right? And, yeah. And we're talking about uh, individual performances within the context of a series, standout individual performances when that one individual is in effect playing a different game to the rest. Cricket, of course, only being nominally a team sport, it's an individual sport in the context of a team, as we all know. So we're talking about sustained surges of one person brilliance across the canvas of a series, right? We picked. 13, I think, 12 or 13, I think it was 13, um, uh, 12, 12 male performers and one female performer uh, over the, the whole canvas of Test cricket, going back to, I think, 1899, no, 13, 14, 19, 13, 14 it was. So what, what you got then? What you got, Ben Jones? Who would you put in there? <laughs> um, I'm going to be unbelievably predictable um, because the defining um, series performance of kind of my cricket watching career. Drum roll, please. <laughs> it's obviously Cook in ten eleven because how on earth can you not go for that? The guy ends the English summer almost out of the team. He's kind of on his knees at the Oval and it's... Changes his technique halfway through that game. 
it just it, it's perfect narrative and then goes out makes a ton everyone kind of breathes a sigh of relief he's got this knack for an emotional end of summer tons Paddy Oval it's just glo- it's, via overthrows as well Mohamed Asif threw the ball over it's just perfect you just couldn't write it yeah. I love him so much um, and then goes to Australia and England uh, fancied but not overwhelmingly so because you're still going to Australia and you don't go to Australia as favourites and they have this oh, just semi-collapse at, at Brisbane and Peter Siddle's birthday hat-trick and all of that and it's it's all over the place and then in the second innings you get 500 for one because Cook comes out and decides now I'm not going to get out anymore <laughs> I've, I've decided that this is my game it's like the, the WG Grace thing of like no they've come to watch me bat but Cook didn't even offer them the bone of getting out in the first place <laughs> he's just there for the whole time and just makes what, I think it's at 244 at Brisbane oh, I would um, say 235 um, so many of those double hundreds for Cook you know um, and then just goes on to dominate the series but because he's not the most flamboyant player it felt like he was just there the whole time. So it, more than any other um, performance I can remember, he was he was the image of that summer because every time you turned on the telly in the middle of the night or you, list, you turned on the radio, it was Alan Cook's walking away to Square Leg and retaking his mark. <laughs> and he's, bat, he's been batting for like three years straight. And it, and because of the glamour that... You, or not glamour, it's kind of a, like a weird grubby sort of glamour that you get following England when they're away is where you're kind of... You've got these emotional images of like waking in the middle of the night, trying to work out what's gone on. How's, how's the, the innings kind of constructed itself? And so latching the uh, the whole narrative of the summer onto the fact that Cook was just continually churning out hundreds in the hardest place in the world that it, for England to play cricket was it it had that perfect mixture of runs and emotion that I think is what we're kind of what I hope you guys are trying to trying to capture well he didn't make the cut <laughs> not even in the magazine I said he it was extraordinarily obvious and it's not even made it I'm gonna I'm gonna obviously discussed. edit it myself next time obviously discussed and and not quite as eloquently as that, Ben, naturally. Well, just Joe, this is just Joe and I. Uh, the, the theory was, the thinking was, and again, you know, this was, this is 100 and, 100 and plenty years of test cricket that we're taking from, not just your your life. Well, it's uh, three years. Or yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the theory was, Jonathan Trott played two seismically important innings in that series, and Cook made, played three. Uh Bell made important runs. Strauss, of course, made important runs as well. England racked up obscene scores in four of the five test matches and won three of them by an innings. Cook was obviously the rock. But there were other outstanding performances as well. Um, and so it was felt only by a whisker that because of England's overall and bizarre dominance that sun that <laughs> winter, uh, and because they were dominant, the whole top six was dominant. Yeah, there was no one who was really out of form. Uh, because of that, by a whisker, we 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 omitted Cook from this this final list. That's a very eloquent reply. If we I'll, if I'll we are that. if we are discussing modern cricket, um, uh, Mitchell Johnson does make the cut. So we are talking about players who are playing a different game during that series. Mitchell Johnson in the follow up return series, thirty something wickets at next to nothing as we all know uh i was there for that tragically i wasn't there for the previous one uh, (laughs) but i was there for the mitchell johnson one and uh it's still talked about in hushed tones mitchell johnson influenced that series more dominantly i think than alistair cook influenced the previous one and so by a whisker uh he, he makes he makes it he makes that that final 13 of ours. That's fair. He left um, 
you know, a few scars on English batsmen and a lot of scars on English supporters. Um, I was in, at the press box in um, the new Perth Stadium this summer when India were there. Um, I was sat sat on the end of my row, and all of a sudden, this kind of perfect human comes and squats on the uh, on the steps next to me, and I just kind of glance down, and this uh, this kind of mad mangle of muscles and tattoos, and it's, and it's Mitchell Johnson stood there in a vest, and it was a very very interesting experience of emotions I had, but the first one was genuinely fear. <laughs> Yeah. Because you know, he is still yeah. the only bowler I've ever seen bowl that quickly for that long against yeah. batsmen who were that good. That's yeah. the thing. England lost that series 5-0, but they're, they're all-time great I, I, players. I wrote, I, wrote the, yeah. I wrote up the, the Johnson bit in the magazine and revisited his book and uh, read the Peterson extract from his book. Um, in brackets, Peterson's book, when he talks about cricket, is great. When he talks about personalities, it's appalling. Uh he writes, Peterson, that at lunch on day two of Brisbane, when England are two down and Trot's just gloved one down the leg side, right on the cusp of lunch, having you know, been all at sea uh, and, and jittery and so on and so on. Cook's already gone as well. He had a stinker that, that tour, of course, didn't he? Um, and Peterson takes Mushtaq Ahmed, who's the bowling coach at the time, to the nets and they soak a load of tennis balls. And this is during the lunch break? During the lunch break. Peterson's terrified, petrified. And it's in his book. It's brilliantly written up. Yeah. Uh, and he takes Mushtaq down at the nets and from about seven or eight yards, these sodden tennis balls, he gets them with a tennis racket to whack them at Peterson as hard as he possibly can. And Peterson wears a few, ducks a few, gets out of the way of a few, just to try and get his brain in gear for what was to come. Uh, and Johnson, of course, blew England away that afternoon. And then they got to Adelaide a week later. And everyone, I remember this, and the, you know, the, the mood around the, the camp is, oh, thank God, we're away from Brisbane. We can get to Adelaide. It's slow and low. Turns a bit. We'll be all right. Win the toss, bat, and be all right. They lost the toss, fielded for two days. And then Johnson took seven for 40, including a spell <laughs> of seven for two. <laughs> seven for two. That's disgusting. Now, now, <laughs> that's, that's quite good. It is quite good, yeah. Uh, so anyway, Johnson makes the cut. Um, any other any other guesses while we're here? There's going to be some dead air probably at uh, this point. Lara, well, of course, Lara in '99. So Lara, um, similar, I guess. Cook was on his knees. Been the build up to that series you talk of. Lara was on his knees as captain and batsman in '99. They'd just got beat five 0 in South Africa. He was on a test by test uh, captaincy run. They lost the first test at Jamaica, got blown out of the park, 300 and plenty lost. They were 34 for four in reply to Australia's first innings at, um, in the second test match. 34 for four. And Jimmy Adams joined Lara uh, and then they batted for a whole day. And Lara made 200 and Jimmy made 94, something like that. And Lara made a double hundred. And Lara says himself, uh, that's his favourite innings of all time. But everyone talks about the 153, which... Coincidentally, is Pereira's yeah. score as well. <laughs> everyone talks about the one five three at Barbados the following Test match, but Lara himself says the double hundred changed everything for him and enabled the one five three to take place. They won that Test, the second Test with the double hundred. Of course, famously they won the one five three game by one wicket, and then he made a seventy ball hundred as well in the fourth Test just for a laugh. <laughs> uh, uh, so Lara naturally makes the cut for that innings, but Lara could have also appeared loads of other times as well. This is the mark of the man. He was famously really good at batting. He was really good at batting, and he was good at particular kind of purple patches of form. You know, he made 600 runs in three test matches against Murali. Murali says far and away the best player he ever bowled against. Far and away. 
622 runs, I think it was, in three test matches. Um, in, a, in a series that West Indies got beat 3-0. And he made 600 runs in three tests. He was captain then as well. So you could have picked loads of Laras. It's funny, isn't it? Because of those, I don't know whether the rest of the examples we're going to look at are, are quite the same. But those three, in terms of Cook, Johnson and, and Lara, they're coming off the back of difficult circumstances there's an element of yeah. um of, of, of contention or um, redemption story yeah there's that there's that narrative there um yeah. that actually the th- there's there's almost something more appealing about a, a player who looked like they weren't going to dominate then yeah. absolutely smashing it yeah and, and again this this riff on the individual within the team context you know sometimes an individual's performance is so vivid in our memories that it eclipses the final result so Warren mm. makes the cut in our list. One in 05 makes the cut. That was, that was going to be my other example. 40, 40 wickets, 200 plus runs uh, and some catches as well. And famously one or two that he dropped. Drops, yeah. just, out <laughs> just out there at the Oval. Uh, um, one makes the cut despite obviously the, you know them getting turned over in that series overall. Uh, and so sometimes the individual's performance is so outlandish that it, it trumps uh, the, the actual result, which is again one of the, one of the joys of cricket. You know, you can have Pyrrhic victories within within the context of a series and a game. Uh, you want you want any more? No, I think no, you I don't. Think, no, fine. Let's move yeah. on. Let's move on. Um, anyway, buy it, folks. It's really good. What else? What else is the magazine that you want to talk about briefly? Well, uh, Will McPherson um, managed to interview Johnny Bairstow uh, and did it very very elegantly, as you would come to expect. Um, uh, he he managed to. To speak to Johnny at a good time as well, because it was between the second and third test matches oh. after he'd, he'd got the gloves back. Um, and and, and Bairstow's good. He's interesting and he acknowledges that he had to you know, kind of take a change, adjust his mindset, analyse one or two things uh, about his own approach. Um, and while he doesn't divulge specific details, because that's not really Bairstow's style, certainly not to do that publicly, um, you get a glimpse into... In, into where he's at as a critic. His determination as well. So I, I have read that from the magazine. And when he's talking about how he got his injury in Sri Lanka, how he's supposed to have been out for six to eight weeks, and he was like, absolutely not. And he was, what was he doing? He was sleeping in weird positions. He, yeah. And, and, everywhere. And, and when, when he... He's back in three weeks. Well, when when, he? when he, he gave that wild scattergun post-day uh, interview after the 100, he was talking about people don't know. They don't know what, what, what we go through as sportsmen. And you know, and there's kernels of truth in that. You know, there's a lot of lot of suffering out there, and a lot of kind of self doubt, and a lot of pounding the walls. In you know, in the in in, in your own head. You know, Mark Wood is a is a, just to, tangentially. Mark Wood uh, went through all kinds of nightmares, um, and he's quite open about that as as he's trying to find his way back. And there is even amongst the strongest personalities, the most alpha personalities in sport, there is still that self-doubt ticking away in the, in the back of, of your mind and you can't even escape it. I'm going to link back to the piece that we were talking about just now because Botham, of course, in 81 makes the cut. Botham's story is part redemption, but he also says in his book exactly that. He said, I never knew if I was going to get back to what I was. And this was in 1981, age 25, uh, before obviously playing out as it did. So these cricketers, these, these sports people full stop, have to wrestle with that. And I think Bairstow... For all that he is a tub thumping up and at him kind of character externally, has had to work through that as well. There aren't many more interesting players in world cricket than Bairstow. And he's so flawed in so many ways and so brilliant in so many ways. And that that is so compelling to kind of be experiencing over the past few years to have seen him 
be dropped, be brought back in, fight back into the team. But basically everywhere in the middle order, England need an ODI opener. Best does the job. He's, he doesn't just do the job. He's become basically the best ODI opener in the world. He's he's such an interesting player. And what is going to be fascinating over the next twelve months is that England now have this triumvirate of wicketkeepers who are all have a very reasonable claim on being a Test player. And the different personalities involved mm. may come to define that debate and that selection debate as much as the qualities of the players themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, just finally, on other bits on the magazine. Well, John Stern interviews Claire Connor, um, and she is typically brilliant and insightful, uh, especially on not just the the kind of the state of women's cricket as it stands, but more on on the state of women's sport and the progress, but the the, the strides that still need to be need to be taken. Um, and cricket as well. It's it's kind of it's treading towards some kind of sense of gender equality, but there, there's still a long way to go, obviously. Um, and there are some uh, some stories that curdle you in recent months, you know, which yeah. we don't really need to go into. But she talks very openly and straightforwardly and honestly and and with the kind of class and integrity that, that we all know that, that she has. It's a brilliant inter- interview by John Stern. I, I would recommend that you read that. Uh, and, you know, all the fun of the fair. Phil Tufnell's Perfect Day, that's a classic. Um, Dan Norcross interviews him for that, and, and I don't know what they were smoking, but, you know, I wouldn't mind a <laughs> And that's great stuff. Uh, anyway, yeah, it's just it's another belter. And Go and buy it. Out today. Out loud. Go and buy out it. Out today. Loads happened in the world of cricket in the last week that, in an ordinary podcast, we'd have probably talked about for ages, but we don't have time. But we'll mention them in passing. One amazing game was uh, Ireland's last ball win against the Netherlands. I don't know if you saw this, either you two, but they needed six off two balls, pointers on strike, um, and he refuses a single off the penultimate ball. Uh, I don't know who's batting at the other end, but he basically comes charging down and basically runs two, but pointer says, no, no, I'll stay on strike. And he had six off the last ball. Superb. That, that was amazing. Um, Oman, uh, two days ago, were bowled out for 24 against Scotland. Yeah, I mate, it was a sticky dog, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> well, well uh, Scotland chased it down in 20 balls. Um, and it was uh, Oman's... Cool, was they the... got lucky, Scotland, on that, that run. <laughs> well, it, it dried out a well, bit. It well, they were, out. because the next day, Oman beat them on 93 runs. Well, which go, has got to be see? one of the best comeback. You know, forget... Pereira's won 5-3. Yeah, right. That's the story. That is the story from this week. Uh, elsewhere, a good bit of news um, in the women's game. So Middlesex are, uh, are going to play their first ever inter-county women's fixture at Lords against Surrey in the annual London Cup this summer. Uh, they played their first game last year, but that was against the MCC, and it got a record uh, attendance for a domestic game in the UK. Uh, so that's, that's good news. Obviously, ridiculously overdue. Elsewhere, what happened? Australia um, <laughs> are massive. Yeah. <laughs> Australia as well. are um, letting the public decide which retro kit they're wearing. Uh, the ODI really, series uh, against New Zealand. I'm sorry, as I'm wrestling over into this one. Okay, um, this go for it. Is a real bugbear of mine um, because the kits are quite cool. Yes, they are. Retro kits are cool now. Retro kits are cool, but the problem is, is that Australia aren't normally known for their kind of slight like sentimental edge they're normally known for winning a lot of cricket games um particularly in one day cricket and i think it's quite funny that having tried it having tried using the retro kit against india and it kind of distracted from the fact that they they lost and they, they did better than people expected them yes to do. but that was due to india underperforming rather than australia being good um what they've decided to do now is that they're going to 
widen it and they're going to use the opportunity and say, yeah, we're going to always play in retro kit, presumably forever. Um, is it, so is this it is the 92 kit, the 1992 kit. It's a public, it's a public vote. So that they're all, they've got about eight different kits and everyone's doing like a so, kind of World Cup of kits. Yeah, they go from like the World Series. There's a nice kit from the mid 80s, oh, 92 World Cup, 96 World Cup, 99 World Cup, and then the like the, the, the the one with the blue strips. Uh, I, don't engage 2000s. with it. I I think they I should like maybe te- they should televise it rather than Australian ODI cricket at the moment. It would be more entertaining to watch <laughs> the selection of the kids. I just think I just think it's quite it's quite amusing that the first time that Aust- in the like in the last thirty years that Australia have been bad at one dayers, they basically decided yeah no we're just going to like fun kits fun shirts great PR like, isn't it great PR. But, but every, everybody knows that the ninety two World Cup kits are the coolest kits. So so the the punters will vote for that one. Which, of course, is the Australians tournament where they, they stunk the place but, out and didn't even escape their, their own group. But if we're going to talk about it, let's talk about this properly. No, 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 no. I've got an issue with the 1992 kit being selected. There'll be another half because, dozen. Because, every, because right. everyone at the World Cup was wearing the same kit. They all look the same. They just had their different colour schemes. So you can't pick something that everyone else was wearing. So for that, for that reason... Maybe they should play in the um, other country's version of that kit from that World <laughs> Cup. So they have to play in the England kit and then they earn their, earn their stripes. Eventually, if they're good, they can play in the Aussie kit. I actually own an England 1992 World Cup retro kit. Um, that doesn't surprise me. Great. Uh, as, <laughs> as, as I think you've probably worked out from this podcast, we're all cricket tragics. Um, Speak for yourself. Yeah, okay. All right. Um... <laughs> And elsewhere, the Germany cricket team, um, oh, in the last week, they've been they've got uh, three county players who have been training with them. Uh, Ollie Rayner, uh, Dieter Klein, and Mosqueda. Uh, they're all they've been training for them in a in a um, in preparation for World Cup qualifiers. Um, oh well, I'm all over that. It'd be great. It's it's high time that we had a central European country just to emerge out of nowhere. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm all over that. And cricket, I've always thought, is ripe for the Germans. Yeah. Kind of, kind of, you know, sort of characteristic. I think I think just it would just fit. Why? <laughs> well, because it's because cricket is is kind of delicate and complex and and they'd be technically very good, weren't they? Yeah, and yeah. and you have to plot your way through it. And I just think that would kind of suit the kind of German mentality. I think it would work perfectly. I think that's one of those arguments that's used about any country when you're trying to be flattering. They're like, oh, China will, China will love cricket because, you know, it's so intelligent and sophisticated, you know, like, like the Chinese. And <laughs> same with Germany. It's a very handsome sport, cricket, isn't it? All the Germans are very handsome as well. <laughs> it's kind of everyone's just buttering up all other nations because we just want everyone to play cricket. Which, and we need, we need all, all the help we can get. Absolutely. Well. There's no so, problem So bring it on. Uh, and, and we'll end on that, folks. Uh, thanks, Phil, for coming. Thanks, Ben, for coming. Thanks yeah, for having us. Um, hope you enjoyed the show. If you're listening for the first time, subscribe, tell your friends, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Podcast Network.